And this episode is brought to you by Harry's.com, where you can get high-quality shaving products for about half the price of name-brand razors. Get $5 off your first order when you use the promo code BEST. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Counterspin, Citizen Radio, On the Media, Moyers and Company, and The Majority Report. And if you haven't brushed up on your Orwell lately, this may be a good time. Some of the country's leading journalists don't seem that interested in journalism that they didn't break. And while I am admittedly not as up in arms about NSA spying as some, I am 100% behind Glenn Greenwald and the Washington Post breaking these stories. They were important, critical stories for Americans to make up their mind about NSA spying. And then you get a guy like Michael Kinsley, and Michael Kinsley is a very important figure in American journalism, both in television and in print. Michael Kinsley, over the last 20, 25 years, here are some of the jobs that this guy has had. Important jobs, both as a columnist and as an editorial decision maker at some of the places that I'm about to name. Crossfire on CNN. First of all, the Harvard Crimson when he was in college. Then Crossfire on CNN. Slate, Time Magazine, the editorial page editor of the Los Angeles Times. This is a guy, the New Republic, now he's at New Republic and Vanity Fair. This guy matters. He is an influential, he is part of the journalism establishment. And he was on cross, when he was on Crossfire, he was from the left. Michael Kinsley is a, a alleged leftist progressive. But here's what Kinsley had to say about Glenn Greenwald and his reporting on Edward Snowden and the NSA secret spying program. Here's Kinsley. The question is who decides what to publish? Seems clear, at least to me, that the private companies that own newspapers and their employees should not have the final say over the release of government secrets and a free press to make them public with no legal consequences. In a democracy, uh, that decision must ultimately be made by the government. Think about what this guy just said. This is the leftist on Crossfire. This guy that decision should ultimately be made by the government that's what they have in england and and that's like the best case scenario that's also what they had in soviet russia where the state news agency and the state paper and state-run television would decide what would go on the air so that's kinsley's point and it is a freaking dangerous point and it is absurd to me that we are having this conversation because it is a completely separate conversation from whether Edward Snowden is a hero or a villain. You can decide that Edward Snowden had a different responsibility and shouldn't have released it, but the newsworthiness of the information that he gave to Glenn Greenwald in the Washington Post is undeniable. We didn't know about the NSA spying program, and now we do. Let me issue a quote from uh, George Orwell. By the way, I'm getting this information from a really critical piece. It's by a guy named Barry Eisler, this piece, uh, from the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Uh, it is unquestionably uh, worth reading. And, and he quotes George Orwell, and I'm bringing it. So uh, you want to read the whole piece by Barry Eisler, I highly recommend it, and not the hatchet job that I'm about to do on it. But here's Barry Eisler, too. He quotes Orwell's definition of journalism. Journalism is printing what someone else does not want printed. Everything else is public relations. And Michael Kinsley would bristle at that, but what Michael Kinsley is suggesting is that we don't have journalism, but we have public relations 
orchestrated and designed by the United States government. All right, so in the piece, uh, again, the Freedom, uh, the Freedom of the Press Foundation piece, here's more of what uh, Kinsley seems to say. Greenwald doesn't seem to realize that every piece of evidence he musters demonstrating that people agree with him undermines his own argument that the authorities brook no dissent. No one is stopping people from criticizing the government or supporting Greenwald in any way. Nobody is preventing the nation's leading newspaper from publishing a regular column in its own pages, dissenting from company or government orthodoxy if a majority of citizens now agree with Greenwald. That dissent is being crushed in this country. That's, he's saying that's Greenwald's point, and will say so openly to a stranger who rings their doorbell or their phone and says she's a pollster. How can anyone say that dissent is being crushed? I mean, it's a remarkable straw man argument that Michael Kinsley, who I thought until today was not an imbecile, because that's not what he's suggesting in any way. He's not saying that dissent is being crushed by the government, but literally we wouldn't be having this conversation. There wouldn't be a pollster calling and identifying herself as a pollster. There wouldn't be a column in the newspaper about warrantless NSA spying in secret and the bulk collection of America's data, both in email and the phone calls they make, unless the story had been published. Glenn Greenwald isn't going around screaming that there's no dissent in this country. That's not the point at all. I'll leave you finally. Again, I recommend the article, Barry uh, Eisler's article. But here's a point. He brings in a quote from none other than Noam Chomsky. And it's exactly this, that the key is not that there wouldn't be dissent, but the government, when this stuff is kept secret, they frame what the argument is. It isn't a legitimate argument. It's an argument within the parameters that they set so they are in effect controlling the dissent because nobody knows anymore here's Chomsky's quote one of the ways that you control what people think is by creating the illusion that there's a debate going on but making sure that that debate stays within very narrow margins namely you have to make sure that both sides in the debate accept certain assumptions and those assumptions turn out to be the propaganda system. As long as everyone accepts the propaganda system, then, and only then, can you have a debate. When you're the main editor at Slate and you're a columnist at Time and you're an executive at the Harvard Crimson and you're the editorial page editor at the Los Angeles Times and you're a featured big-name columnist, in Vanity Fair and a featured big-name columnist in uh, The New Republic, you should know that. And the fact that he doesn't know it is staggering to me. And again, to put a final stamp on the point and the irony that this comes from Michael Kinsley, Michael Kinsley created a phrase now known around journalism as the Kinsley gaffe. This is our last graphic, 13. Take a look at what a Kinsley gaffe is. It's what we crave for here at the Young Turks. A gaffe, said Kinsley, is when a politician tells the truth, some obvious truth he isn't supposed to say. Like, this guy theoretically understands that the job of journalism is to get to the truth. A gaffe is when a politician tells the truth. Here's what Glenn Greenwald and the Washington Post did. They told the truth. They told the truth. That's supposed to matter.
That's supposed to matter a lot. The government is not supposed to be able to lie to us this easily. I lied. That wasn't my last point. I want to bring up the very first thing that Kinsley said one more time because it mattered because this is the world that a guy allegedly on the left wants. The question is, he says, who decides what to publish? It seems clear, at least to me, that the private companies that own newspapers and their employees should not have the final say over the release of government secrets and a free press to make them public with no legal consequences. He wants legal consequences for the press. Journalists, perhaps, to go to jail. In a democracy, he finishes, which Greenwald, he says, we still are. That decision must ultimately be made by the government. That is literally crazy. Come on now, who do you, who do you, who do you, who do you think you are? <laughs> Bless your soul. The invasion of the Iraqi city of Mosul by militias, including the Sunni jihadi group ISIS, has some U.S. reporters waxing nostalgic and revealing how they see that conflict as mostly about U.S. sacrifice and suffering. On ABC World News, Martha Raddatz declared that Mosul was once a focal point of America's fight to bring peace and stability to this country. Well, it's hard to imagine Iraqis seeing the war as bringing peace, but this is not a new approach for ABC. In January, ABC's Terry Moran spoke of, quote, a decade of U.S.-led war to plant democracy in Iraq, close quote. To U.S. TV outlets, American sacrifice was the main story, as Raditz put it. So, 11 years after the U.S. invaded Iraq, lost nearly 4,500 American lives, and spent over $730 billion, Iraq is in crisis. And here's NBC anchor Brian Williams. After all the American lives there were lost, all those who came home grievously wounded, Iraq's second largest city, Mosul, has now fallen into the control of an al-Qaeda offshoot. But the present Iraq crisis is not happening in spite of the U.S. war, but because of it. And it's beyond perverse to frame the ongoing catastrophe in Iraq through the prism of U.S. suffering, as if Iraqi lives are of secondary concern. According to the most comprehensive study, published in PLOS magazine, approximately half a million Iraqis lost their lives as a result of the Iraq war. A hundred times the number of Americans killed them. Harrys.com was built on the idea of avoiding all of the annoyances and excessive expenses that comes along with shaving. Case in point, I was at the drugstore the other day. There was a guy in the shaving aisle trying to look at several different sets of razor blades. And every time he would open that plastic container to get a box out, an alarm would go off. And he did this several times looking at several different sets. And so I had two thoughts simultaneously. First of all, irritation, because how obnoxious of a way to try to buy anything that is. 
And second of all, pity, because this guy had clearly not been introduced to the new, easier way of buying razor blades, especially through harrys.com, where the blades are better and cheaper than the ones he was looking at. You know, one of their new taglines is, we thought high-quality razors were expensive to produce, too, until we started making them. So I've become a big fan because they get top marks in all the categories that matter to me. The blades give literally the best shave I've ever had, no exaggeration. They're also way cheaper, about half the price of their big-name competitors. And finally, no alarms go off when I try to order them online. So go to harrys.com to try them out. You'll thank me later. And to help you with your first order, use the promo code BEST to save $5 off your first purchase. And that lets them know that you're also supporting this show at the same time. As you guys know, we've been covering on Citizen Radio how the New York Times coverage of uh, Israel uh, bombarding Palestine has been atrocious. Um, We were joking that we tried to start a hashtag New York Times feature headlines. uh, Cowards all favorited it. The the wording of the New York Times headlines has been incredibly passive. Um, Not even like, I mean, borderline like as... As close to lying as you can get without official, like without blaming Israel. So, for example, it would be like drone finds Palestinians. Yeah, like the drone went on a hike <laughs> and discovered treasure. Yeah, yeah, it was just like no one launched the drone, or Dro- I'm sorry, missile. No one launched the missile. Drone rescues Palestinian from life. Right. Uh, so they've done it again, you guys. Um, this one's nuts. This one, they actually changed the title, did, right? So it was I, originally what it was. And shout out to this really cool website, newsdiffs, spelled D-I-F-F-S dot org. That oh, is sh- that the white supremacist site? <laughs> no. That shows when headlines um, have been changed and like what time they were changed. And it's a really cool way to keep track if uh, a publication like the New York Times tries to change its headline. So... For example, at 2.28 p.m. on July 16th, the article goes up online and the title or the headline is Four Young Boys Killed Playing on Gaza Beach. That sounds like something that happened. Yeah, that it's it's an accurate description of the account that follows. And there were journalists present. Yep. Um, still, missing from that headline, curiously, is is who killed them. Uh, to say that four young boys killed playing... It's passive. It doesn't oh, say right, okay. Israel killed four young boys but still, playing on Gaza Beach. But still, not nearly as bad as what it turned into. <laughs> no. So, uh, same day, July 16th, at 9.13 p.m., the headline is changed to Boys Drawn to Gaza Beach and Into Center of Mideast Strife. Okay. Which is, it, it clouds it even further. Like, the original headline was not great, but this almost removes all meaning entirely. It, it sounds like, I don't know, like, that they were playing and, and things got tumultuous. It doesn't say that they were killed in the headline anymore. It still doesn't say Israel had anything to do with it. But Mideast strife is what does such that a strange mean? euphemism. For killed. Yeah, for systematic bombing and destruction by Israel. And then to say that there's no mention of their deaths anymore. You've literally erased their deaths in the headline. 
drawn to Gaza Beach. I mean, that I have images of them like playing in the water. Yeah. <laughs> Not blown to bits like by on Israel. Vacation. Yeah, and I mean, there were photos online of people carrying their bodies. It's so horrible. There's a, a journalist who has been covering... Um, oh, yeah, you told me about this this morning. Yeah, Peter Beaumont, um, at Peter S. Beaumont, uh, is a journalist in Gaza. And, um, you know, he had horrific accounts that he was, you know, trying to revive a kid and, like, picking shrapnel out of them and, like... So, so terrible. Um, and I mean, I, the New York Times should be embarrassed. I mean, they're not that they're usually great. No, but this is like... This is just surreal. This is like this Orwellian is, This shit. is Orwellian, yeah. And we don't use that term lightly um, on this show. Jamie's wearing his Che Guevara shirt. I'm wearing my Che Guevara <laughs> shirt um, and my Orwell shorts. <laughs> Um, and my, uh, regular sandals mm-hmm. that were made in 1984. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's really, really creepy. So I- the reason I say it's Orwellian is if you are not saying who is responsible for the destruction, it's creepy because you are going out of your way to avoid assigning blame. If North Korea, if the North Korean government killed one American adult, not even child, mm. it would say murderous North Korea <laughs> murders brave American hero. <laughs> right. It wouldn't say uh, American man finds his way into conflict uh, ends up on beach. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, it feels as though there is a deliberate attempt here to avoid saying who is responsible for the death and destruction, which if you are calling yourself a news organization or a news publication is kind of a big part of what your job's supposed to be. And even if you think these Palestinian kids deserved it, even if you think this is Hamas's fault and not Israel's, whatever. Hamas always hiding on the beach. Uh, <laughs> disguise, <laughs> disguising themselves as children. <laughs> and sand mounds. Uh, uh. Oh, it's the it's the Hamas sand creatures. Oh, no. and, and one of them must have crawled inside that kid's body. Oh, they're always doing that. They call children pods. It's the strain. It's the strain. He crawled in. Oh, I knew Guillermo, Guillermo was behind this. And uh, but even if, if, if you are uh, an American citizen and you respect uh, journalism, you know, you would not want the deaths of Israelis described this way. You would not want the deaths of Americans described this way. No matter whose fault it was, no matter who is killed, no matter who does the killing, if your job is to report the news, um, you know, you fucking report what happened. Oh, there's this really new creepy thing that's happening. David Frum tweeted, um, who was it? I forget. Somebody that, that posted fucking guy. a chart of the deaths on both sides. The one side, one Israeli was killed and over, I, I forget the exact count now, but it's well over 600, I believe now. Yeah. And we talked about how it's like 80% civilians, yes. how like hospitals have been targeted, Horrible, uh, yeah. like re- not retirement homes. So these like, are just facts, yeah. right? 
Uh, someone posted the chart and David Frum responds, I know you wish there were more dead Jews or something like that. Ooh. I know we all wish there were more dead Jews. Why can't we just wish there were less dead Palestinians? And it's like, that's not what that chart means. Like, what we always say is, and I, I honestly have never heard anybody say any different, at least that I follow. Obviously, I would not follow <laughs> any anti-Semitic people. Yeah. But what everyone always says is, any death on either side is horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible. But... It is our duty as just people who believe in facts and statistics and, you know, objective truth yeah. that we have to acknowledge when one side is experiencing much more casualties, many more casualties than the other side. Yeah. If we don't acknowledge that, then it's just like, oh, so we're choosing not to acknowledge reality right now. Yeah. Any of us. We're not saying Israel's behind it, and we're not saying that the destruction on the Palestinian side is far greater than on the Israeli side. Ones who were forgotten by history Because they're forever seen as the enemy Why did we hate you again? Oh, I forgot Or was it because of that thing that you did to us? Because of that other thing that we did to you And you got something we think we're entitled to Society is a way that we don't like So we're sending our boys over To start a the conflict between the Israeli military and Hamas rages on. According to the Gaza Health Ministry, more than 800 Palestinians have been killed. As of Friday, Israel has lost 32 soldiers and at least three civilians. And each side uses very different words to tell its very different story. As the Vienna-based International Press Institute found, even seemingly innocuous language can alienate or anger one side or the other. So with the help of Three Israeli and three Palestinian journalists, it set out to identify those hot-button words and phrases that the media throw around and create a glossary that offers context and more neutral language. The results are assembled in a handbook called Use With Care. Naomi Hunt, editor of the glossary, says they knew the task was pretty nearly impossible. There is no such thing as objective language in this conflict because objective means two different things to two different sides. And so so the best you can hope for is to sort of describe how different groups might respond to different terminology based on their own experiences and their collective memory and so on. Were there any particular words that were especially fraught? You know, I think almost every word was fairly <laughs> fraught. Give me an example. Read your entry on caught in the crossfire. Okay. Reports occasionally use the expression caught in the crossfire when referring to people who are killed during an exchange of fire, which implies, first, that the victims were civilians, and, secondly, that the killing was accidental. Until it has been clarified whether the action was purposeful and whether the person killed was really a civilian, it is better to simply say they were killed. I marveled at how you tiptoed your way through words of death execution, murder, liquidation, neutralization, targeted killing. Any word to say that you killed somebody that implies either the guilt or innocence of the victim or the guilt or innocence of the person doing the killing is going to be loaded for someone else. Yeah, and if you use the word murder, you're saying one thing. If you use right. the word neutralization, you're saying another. Generally, you're into killed 
or assassinated. At most, assassinated for a political mm -hmm. figure. I also want you to read the entry called Measures. Measures. There is a Palestinian view that the word measures, used for example as part of the phrase economic measures or security measures, minimizes actions such as blockades or raids imposed by Israel on Palestinian civilians. Journalists should explain what measures were taken, what justification was given, and what the response was on the other side. That one could really sneak up and bite you if you were writing on deadline. That, I must say, was one of the words where it surprised me that the Palestinian journalists found that word troubling. The same with the word development. The Palestinian journalists felt quite strongly that the word development has a positive connotation of improvement when often it is used in the context of construction in the East Jerusalem or the West Bank that might involve, for example, the destruction of Palestinian orchards or homes and property, which for them, therefore, is clearly negative. And so the advice of the handbook? Was to use the word construction. There were certainly some words where even the handbook concedes no alternative or neutral language could be found. That's right. The separation barrier is an example. The separation barrier was put up between Israel proper and the West Bank, as well as Israel proper in Gaza, and is basically a, a wall at which there are checkpoints preventing the flow of people between those territories. It's an extremely sensitive issue. So there's a view on one hand that it's a security fence or that it's a security barrier. Uh, but there's Palestinian view that that implies that all Palestinians are violent criminals who need to be kept away. On the other hand, some of the Palestinian terms for the separation that you do see in some Palestinian media, like apartheid wall, mm -hmm. for example, are deeply offensive to Israelis who believe that there was legitimate reason to install the barrier in the first place. So you call it the separation barrier. That was the alternative word that we arrived at following a lot of discussion and a lot of back and forth, and which I think probably made nobody happy, which was our only indication that it might be the best one. It is kind of interesting that when you try to shear words and phrases of their political meanings and of their emotional contexts, you end up reducing the amount of information they provide. I mean, you either can choose them telling one half of the story or the other half of the story or less of the story altogether. I wonder if we're reducing the amount of information. I think certainly the amount of poetry, the alternatives that we provide, I wouldn't say that they're the most uh, riveting use of language, but that's precisely because it's the emotional baggage of words that is offensive to people on the other side. I believe our project on the Israel-Palestinian conflict is about three years old at this point. Not very long. But even in that small time span, we see that the same conflict comes up in a similar shape over and over again. That the communication between the two sides, if anything, seems to be worsening and not improving. And so... This guidebook, we hope for what it's worth, it will help people who are interested in, in at least following along as they read the news, because it helps you to see how the language that you're consuming also reflects a certain perspective. Look, 30 Afghans killed at a family wedding, 60 Iraqi killed trying to vote. A woman gets gang raped out in India, five kids' lives get ended by a drone. 
I don't care if you're living in a high rise You're no different from a man in a hut Every single life is sacred in God's eyes You ain't worth more cause you got more stuff I don't care what the color of your skin is I don't care about your fortune or fame I just want for us to have more perspective And understanding everybody's pain is the same Perspective Bird's eye view beautiful appear. As we record this show, Israeli attacks on the Gaza Strip have killed over 200 Palestinians. The vast majority are civilians. Several dozen are children. But so much of the reporting of this violence strives for a sort of balance, which might lead one to conclude that some U.S. pundits treat Arab lives and Israeli lives very differently. That might sound harsh, but consider CBS Face the Nation host Bob Schieffer. On his July 13th show, he hosted two Israeli guests, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Ambassador Ron Dermer, and just one Palestinian, Ambassador Man Rashid Arakat. But it wasn't just about those numbers. Schieffer expressed genuine concern for Israeli fears about rockets coming from Gaza. I think uh, this war really came home to a lot of Americans this morning. While I was interviewing the Prime Minister, the air raid uh, sirens went off over Tel Aviv, and then before the interview was over, we heard the people in the background telling people they could come out from the, uh, from the shelters. Schieffer went on to reiterate this idea later on in the show, expressing sympathy to the Israeli ambassador because of a report that a rocket could have been fired at his mother's hometown. The CBS anchor made it very clear that Israelis being threatened is what brings this conflict home for him. The day he said this, he could have read in the newspapers about an Israeli strike on a center for disabled adults in Gaza. Or the strike on a house where a Hamas police official was. Seventeen innocents, including children, were killed there. Do these deaths register for a reporter like Bob Schieffer? His silence about these lives and his obvious concern for Israeli lives speaks volumes. At long last, the internet has caught up to TV and newspapers. It is as reputable as those uh, much longer serving forms of, of news gathering and distribution. But not because the internet is more reputable than it used to be. It's just that people don't trust TV or newspaper at all, or certainly not as much as they did in decades past. Look at this chart. This is uh, decades of Gallup survey research. And you're seeing there uh, the news on the internet, basically a flat line over the course of since the internet started uh, producing and delivering news. But gradually, people have started to realize that newspapers just aren't that reputable. Television news, they don't have a lot of confidence in it. 
If you watch The Young Turks, you see every day why you should not have that much faith in much of the television news that's out there right now. That's a depressing, depressing, yeah. depressing number because yeah. the fact is your only hope right now is the internet. Yeah. Well, actually, I was going to say your only hope is newspapers. I mean, like, oh, but, I mean, but, but, but I mean, a lot of that's the same thing. I mean, we're, you're, you're just printing it out and reading it on your computer, but it's still a newspaper frequently right. that's done the story. Mm-hmm. Like, at least there is some depth there. At least there is some context. They might actually work and break a story about corruption. They might actually do something. TV news, worthless. I mean, newspapers are being dragged down in that number because nobody reads the newspaper anymore. Like, that's a way for people to feel good about themselves. Like, newspapers aren't reputable. That's why I haven't read a newspaper in nine years. Uh, well, and also, they don't have the budget that they used to to do well, the yeah, sort of investigative totally. journalism you're right, that you're talking you're right. about. Yeah. Understand, yeah. by the way, that you're seeing a gap of about three percentage points between the bottom, which is TV and newspapers. All of that is within the, the, the margin of error of the surveys. But still, uh, internet now above TV... I mean, there is, as we've said often, there is that sort of investigative journalism is going on in some places. Like David Sirota has uncovered a lot of great stuff in the past few months, right. but it's just it's not all over. Internet numbers, of course, and has been for a long time because they don't know what to trust on the internet. Right. They ha- don't. Yeah. They, but I think that's why that number will actually rise because now there are some brands that you can trust on the internet, whether it's Glenn Greenwald's new project or you like an independent uh, source like Salon or Raw Story, whatever it might be, uh, Lip TV, uh, anything in the TYT network, could be, Young Turks maybe, right? So uh, before it was just a a jungle, right? And you didn't know what was coming at you, if it was true or not. Now you're getting some things that actually challenge the mainstream, etc. The blaze. Right. So I think that old number will move up, but it hasn't yet, right? And and to be honest, it's moved down. It's moved down super slowly, but it's moved down. I mean, it's sinking, you know, the trust part is sinking with everybody else. Right. Super slowly, although in a very brief period of time. But also, you got to bear in mind that when we're looking at three decades ago, TV by its very nature, because there were only a few channels, was inherently less partisan than TV now. Newspapers to some extent now, now that they've been consolidated amongst a few billionaires and also especially the internet. The internet news has basically only existed in a time of hyper-partisanship. And that wasn't the case with TV 50 years ago. So that's a really good point. But I think that what has brought the TV numbers down, to some degree newspapers, uh, is that people realized, oh my god this is propaganda. Right, you so think? I don't yeah. I don't know what I'm getting out of the internet. So that's why the numbers are still flatlining, right? But I do now. I'm beginning to know what I'm getting out of the television yeah. news, and I used to think that was real, and I used to think that I could trust it. Now I realize, wait a minute, those guys they're feeding me f- like fakeness. Like the, the product that they produce is fakeness. Right. Politicians, they're like TV stars. They're just like yeah. they're contributors to the news show. That's all. When you bring people on and they just argue, it's like they might as well be. And they're just John McCain's playing a part, and I think people are aware of that. There couldn't be a more timely book than this one, 935 Lies, The Future of Truth and the Decline of America's Moral Integrity, by Charles Lewis, one of our premier journalists who has inspired many of us in this craft to aim high and dig deep. First and foremost an investigative reporter, Chuck Lewis produced some of 60 Minutes' hardest-hitting stories. He left CBS News to found the Center for Public Integrity, one of the largest nonprofit investigative reporting publishers in the world. 
He wrote this New York Times bestseller, The Buying of the President, 2004, and four other investigative books. As for this new one, those 935 lies in the title were uncovered in a three-year study of the rush to war in Iraq by the Center for Public Integrity and the Fund for Independence in Journalism. It is, Lewis writes, a record of what U.S. government officials said to cause most Americans and their elected representatives to completely ignore facts, logic, and reason. Timely, too, for another reason. Fifty years ago this August, President Lyndon Johnson, at whose side I was then working, seized on obscure and unverified events on the other side of the world to rush Congress into the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, a motion that he turned into a blank check for escalating the war in Vietnam. As Chuck Lewis rightly says, it was a monumental misrepresentation. Welcome. It's great to be here. Do you think George W. Bush lied about Iraq? Do you think Lyndon Johnson lied about Vietnam? Uh, yes. <laughs> I do. You know, I've I tried very hard, you know, in the case of Bush, I actually was trying to give the benefit of the doubt because if someone believes it, if it's a matter of conviction and they've persuaded themselves of something that's untrue, is that a lie? Or do they just have misguided beliefs that, you know, and I tried to give Bush the benefit of the doubt there, but over time, each passing year, I've decided that I was way too generous. <laughs> and I look at flatly, did they make statements that weren't true? The answer is yes. Did they decide they were going to will, willfully do that over a period of, two years, and was it an orchestrated campaign? And it was uh, false statements. There, that, those were not coincidental. If you look who said what, when, and the when especially is quite relevant. This was an orchestrated campaign, which, of course, Scott McClellan, the press secretary to Bush, publicly essentially said in his memoir uh, after our report, Iraq War Card, came out, by the way. So I believe in both cases, uh, Lyndon Johnson and George W. Bush, they knew what they were saying was not right. They knew it was not precise or accurate, and they knew it would mislead the American people, but also do what they wanted to do. In both cases, they had an agenda. That's, that's what I believe. Well, you've said that we should never underestimate the capacity for self-delusion. Who was it who said that convictions are more dangerous enemies of truth than lies? I mean, they can believe it so so completely, be so self-deluded, right? Well, that exactly. All the Bush folks, Bush, Cheney, no one has done a candid interview with them where they actually pin their ears to the wall and ask them the tough question. I have not seen anyone do that. That's not coincidental. They've never been called before Congress. Now, what is that about? We used to have this idea of checks and balances. We don't have any checks and balances. Uh, the Bush administration also destroyed tens of millions of emails that no one could see. Uh, so, I mean, and, and no one said anything about it. They had 69 email accounts that were done through the Republican Party while they were conducting business, knowing that's a private corporation, not part of the United States government. So all of this uh, deceit and, 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 and elaborate efforts to deflect the public from, oh, yeah, the truth, <laughs> it's pretty outrageous. And we don't, and so we'll never see some of those emails ever, I think. And that, to me, is tragic. But I have enough, I've seen enough now to make a conclusion. Yes, we were absolutely misled, and yes, they did lie. And they, 
it, maybe they're lying to themselves. Maybe they actually have come to believe what they're saying. They probably, many of them, some of them at least probably do. But they'll never say it on television. And I don't even know if they'll tell their spouses. Uh, who, who will ever say? I don't know. Your, your book traces from the Gulf of Tonkin right on through the Vietnam War. And it traces the, from the build-up to Iraq to the aftermath of Iraq. And in both cases, you clearly outline a pattern of deception that was continued over a long while. Well, it's clear. In both cases, those in power knew what they were doing, and those in power had a plan, and those in power orchestrated their plan, and the American people in both instances were completely in the dark. And thousands of lives were lost in both cases. And the fact that we did it, and it's, it's not a partisan thing, there are two different presidents, two different parties, 40 years apart, but guess what, folks? It was the same basic thing. Uh, we wanted to do a war of choice. When the reports came back from the Gulf of Tonkin, Lyndon Johnson believed them. I know that. I was right, right. there by it. The tragedy is he acted before they could be verified and before right. he could get right. And then he started telling himself that he did the right thing even though the initial information was misleading. And the more he told himself that he was doing the right thing because there was this danger out here, and then he used it to get the Gulf of Tonkin resolution passed, he then felt he had to keep telling it. Well, yeah, yeah then you're, soon, you're a prisoner to your statements. So yeah. I, I understand that dynamic. So for the last two weeks, you could hardly turn on the television set without seeing the architects and the cheerleaders of the invasion of Iraq uh, 11 years ago being asked their opinion now of what the U.S. should do in Iraq. So there was ABC's Jonathan Carl just the other day turning to Dick Cheney and asking, what would you do in Iraq? There wasn't a bit of irony in his voice or in his eyes. Well, I, I, it, I, that's an abomination. It's, there's a moral problem here. They're not telling the full truth and they're presenting themselves, the media, a false image. But I know, I, as a, a veteran uh, from the networks, actually, I know exactly what that dynamic is. And you are rewarded for the gets you have, the people, the big the, names. The that interview you get. Yeah, right, and if you rip them to shreds, guess what? They're not going to come on your show. Uh, I've noticed that as Mike Wallace's producer. <laughs> You've lived in Washington how long now? Uh, boy, well... It's really scary, 40 years. So what did you learn in doing this book over the last nine years that you didn't know? Well, it's possible I was in danger of becoming cynical before, but um, I, I have to say the extent of the, of the, of the lies, uh, I actually didn't realize the pervasiveness. I, I just thought that occasionally some turkey would lie. I mean... But the, it was the extent of this. This is a systemic problem we have here. We have an inability to get the truth in real time. And the media has a complete inability to find out the truth in real time. And when it's right in front of their face, they don't always report it. Uh, and so, so we really have a problem here because... If we don't know what the truth is in this country, we don't have a country. It's end of story. It's not our country anymore. Uh, th this is fundamental. Uh, if, and, and if the public doesn't care about facts, then journalists, frankly, are not terribly relevant either. I had a professional 
crisis. Like, why am I doing this if no one cares? And false information is what they believe, not the actual information. You know James Risen, the New York Times reporter, right? Mm -hmm. He's refused to testify before a grand jury under subpoena and reveal a confidential source of information in his book, State of War, about the secret U.S. campaign against the Iranian nuclear program. The Supreme Court has refused to hear his case, and Risen now says he will go to jail if necessary. What are the stakes in this case? Well, they're very high. I mean, there's very, they're very high for, for Jim in particular, obviously. There's a dirty little secret about national security reporting. Uh, there's only about 15 or so people that do that full-time in the United States. In a country of 300-plus million people, only 15 or so do it for a full-time job. And, and Jim Risen happens to be one, and as you know, he's the one who co-authored the domestic surveillance stories that won the Pulitzer back in 05. Uh, today, the, the, the dirty little secret in Washington is that we have thousands of cameras. Uh, every cell phone has a, a GPS tracking device. And uh, and you also can't check into any government agency and sign in to get into a meet with someone because the government has that information and they'll know who came. And if you call them, their calls are potentially monitored. And there is a general belief, uh, oh. widely shared, that your emails are scraped or at least accessed. And I know journalists who have been told privately by folks in the NSA and elsewhere that that's basically not untrue. Uh, and so you have a situation here. They know who his source was. They do? They do. And they have multiple ways in which they've identified who it is, and that's why they brought a case, and they have enough evidence that they hope and they think to convict this person. They've already... They want to convict the source. They want to convict the source, and they want to have Jim Risen be the one who helps them do it. But they don't want to necessarily betray their intelligence ways that they found out that may or may, they may be legal because they're government employees, but they're going to appear to be unseemly because they involve monitoring of employees and pulling all kinds of things. So we have a little, another strange thing going on here where the government doesn't really want to go anywhere near this subject. And so they would like, so we're all looking at Jim Risen and whether he goes to prison. And the real issue is actually the government. What, what are they mad about? Well, he did a story in a chapter in his book, State of War, that actually showed that uh, the CIA sent nuclear information to Iran. Oops. And uh, <laughs> they are living. Something we might yeah. want to know about. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. I want to know that the government it, responsible to the people was actually making these serious mistakes. Yeah, it's unbelievable that, that they were doing that. And it's unbelievable. And so Ryzen breaks that story in the book. And they are mad that he did this, and they frankly embarrassed them. Uh, and so they're trying, this is retribution. I think it has very little to do with anything but retribution. Uh, but I also think what is really disturbing now is the difficulty of doing this type of reporting. It was never easy. Now it is probably more difficult than it's ever been in U.S. history. And uh, uh, President Obama has used the Espionage Act against journalists more than any president in U.S. history. I think even Nixon only used it once against uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon Papers, and Obama's used it how many times? Eight times. It's unbelievable. The Espionage Act. Right, the Espionage Act. And, and who would have ever imagined that? Uh, uh, this is something Obama never talked about in campaigns. He never publicly said he was going to go do this. 
And like a, a lot of things in his administration, he's trying to have it both ways. He's supporting a shield law to some extent in Congress for journalists. But on the other hand, he's criminalizing investigative reporting by going after sources. And, and so he's, he's throwing a bone or being accommodating to the national security establishment in Washington, which, you know, in, in just a couple years period uh, did 76 million classified documents, far more than any time in U.S. history. And he's a prisoner to that community on, to a large extent. And this is a fellow who didn't know anything about foreign policy, he was a state legislator in Illinois and was a one-term senator. And suddenly he's become more hawkish against reporters than George W. Bush. I don't know why anyone, I don't know anyone who saw that coming. What does he know we don't know? That is really a, a, a peculiar thing, and it's not been adequately ventilated. And journalists haven't asked Obama directly the few times they have direct access. So what's at stake if we do silence and punish whistleblowers? Well, what's at stake is whistleblowers won't come forward. They know they're going to be prosecuted. They know they're being monitored. Uh, a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, sources have dried up. There, there have been some panels in the last year or two in the journalistic realm, and, and uh, folks have talked about how it's harder to find people to talk now because they fear retribution. They know that this, the surveillance has gotten uh, incredibly intense, and the, the, the stakes are incredibly high, and they get that. And so a lot of folks are who might be inclined to leak, and leakers are, are wonderful because they tell reporters what they don't already have and they can't find in any document. They're very essential. If Edward Snowden had offered you the NSA documents, would you have published them? I would have liked to. He didn't call. Um, but if he had? I would. I, I would have. Uh, you know, I, when I ran the Center for Public Integrity, we posted the Patriot II Act, we were told by the top aide to the attorney general, don't do it. You will be sorry if you do. And we quoted them by name in our article. Uh, and we posted within minutes. For my younger viewers, what's the Patriot II Act? The Patriot, uh, it was called the Patriot II Act, the Domestic Enhancement Security Act of 2003, to be precise. And they were introducing it just days before the invasion of Iraq, perhaps hoping no one would notice. It took the Patriot Act, uh, which substantially limited civil liberties for a large number of Americans and, and in general up the ante about security in America, but it took it to a whole other place. The right. Patriot II Act was far more restrictive. Can democracy die of too many lies? Uh, I don't think there's any question about it. Uh, um, you're usually the one who quotes scripture. <laughs> uh, but uh, what my only thing I could ever quote, I may not even have it perfectly right, but from Proverbs, when there is no vision, the people perish. Uh, that, that happens to be one of the all-time most interesting statements I've ever heard. And I think it, if you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know what is happening, how are you going to embrace any problem of our time with any seriousness? If, if you're, all you're ever doing are uh, two two uh, parties fighting over everything and everything is debatable and you can never reach a consensus on any single thing and you don't even have common goals anymore. Um, what are we here? Uh, starting to wonder. Uh, and so I actually, it, it goes pretty deep here. I think this is so fundamental. Um, and uh, I, I don't, I think the only thing we have 
that we can learn is I do believe that old uh, saw information is power. I think if we learn what the truth is, we find out what is actually happening and we have the facts, we can act on them. But there are still many Americans who won't. I, I reconcile that myself to that. But there are a lot of Americans who need to, um, frankly, start paying attention. The book is 935 Lies, The Future of Truth and the Decline of America's Moral Integrity. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Let's run down a few things. I think as... uh as Matt Dust said, we can do all these things at the same time. There's a current situation, there's a more recent situation, but look, you gotta stay on target with what people said back in 2002, 2003, when they were selling, marketing, manipulating, and whipping people into a frenzy for this invasion. And you know, and people would go out. People like Janine Garofalo, and we've talked about it, and she would be bullied and she would be mocked and she would be harassed for being fundamentally right about everything in terms of what this invasion would lead to and all of the different ways that Iraqis pay for this invasion, all the different ways we pay for this invasion, all the different ways uh, that the region pays for this investigation. And I want to start by just noting that Judith Miller... is not only not hiding under a rock, and I mean a rock, obviously, <laughs> although maybe she should be hiding in Iraq. I think that would be... That might be karmically fitting. Yes. This person who fed intelligence lies from a bank fraudster named Ahmed Chalabi, who we were going to install. That was the first puppet regime we were going to install in Iraq. The Iraqi National Congress was his outfit, and he would sit with Judy Miller, and he would say, Saddam Hussein has weapons programs that rival the most sophisticated chemical and nuclear and everything weapons in the world, and he'll kill everybody, and he's a combination of Stalin and Hitler and Gaddafi before you liked Gaddafi, and we need to do something. And Judy Miller would say, uh-huh, 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 and then she would type it out, and she would publish it, and then Dick Cheney would go on Meet the Press with Tim Russert, and he'd be like, well, there's a report in the uh, New York Times. <laughs> Even the New York Times is reporting this. And they would say that uh, Iraq is... He's on the verge of, of building a weapon that has really not been seen since 
any of the James Bond films, and uh, such as Dr. No. And anyways, and as ludicrous as all of this sounds, this is exactly what happens. Yes. That's it. That's the history. I remember, I remember how old I was. I don't know. I was like 17 or something or 18. And being like, what is going on? People are completely out of their minds. There's no critical thought here. But anyways, Judith Miller has not made an apology. She has not reassessed everything. She has gone to Fox News. But something happened this past weekend where even me, in all of my endless cynicism, I was shocked by two things about this clip we're about to play of Judith Miller from this past weekend on Fox News. Let's, let's roll this sound. Other than that, uh, Judy, did the, uh, did the media buy the line from the administration and just say, okay, we're Look, off? Look, I, I think Americans were very happy to, quote, leave Iraq after all of these years, just as they're very happy to leave Afghanistan. The real question is what happens when we leave and the circumstances under which we leave? And we're going to go on fighting about that, Eric, for a long time. I think it's interesting that the exchange we just heard between Jay Carney and John Carl, that wasn't even a part of the ABC report, that heated exchange on the situation in Iraq and, and who's responsible and how did this situation occur. It's just as if, oh, wow, we woke up one morning and ISIS, our enemy, that is Al-Qaeda, aligned group, they're even too radical for Al-Qaeda, is suddenly threatening Baghdad. It's really a failure, another, yet another failure. Okay. 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 Oh, fucking K. Okay. So first of all, that question, did the media roll over for the administration? You're asking Judy Miller? Yeah. Judy Miller didn't even need to roll over for the administration. She gave the Bush administration the ammunition they needed to make other people roll over. She was part of the rollover process as one of the worst, most malignant, most malignant, dishonest, disingenuous, fear-mongering, and dangerous journalists in American history. That's what she did. She wasn't rolling over. She was giving them the machine gun bullets to keep everybody else in line. Then, what about what we're doing now in terms of ISIS and terrorism? Well, guess what? Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is the precursor to ISIS, was created after this thing called the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which Judith Miller's horrific reporting led to. And now she sits back on Fox with the temerity to talk about this while she was literally a handmaiden of the architects of everything that's happening now. Their shamelessness, which I could actually sometimes have a little bit of perverse sympathy for. (laughs) And then there is myopic, sociopathic, just disgusting self-indulgence and if you're watching that and you have any idea who judy miller is and you're taking that analysis in any way seriously i don't care if you're a republican or what your politics is or why you're watching fox you need a friggin lobotomy this wasn't the rollover press this was the lie and ammo press this woman was a conduit for fraudsters trying to take over iraq who fed her fake intelligence, who Dick Cheney used on Tim Russert, who never asked him a question. That's it. 
That sentence is how Judith Miller should be remembered. She should be off volunteering at a boys and girls club. And they shouldn't even take her. And they shouldn't even take her. That's exactly right. Unbelievable. Hi Jay, this is Adam from Oxford, England. Uh, I'm calling about the Israel-Palestine episode, and specifically in response to one of your clips, which said that it is common wisdom that uh, a two-state solution is the way to go, and quite frankly, I've never really understood this. A two-state solution seems to me to be completely false. Israel, Palestine, whatever you want to call it, has historically always been one land, one nation. And to divide it up as it is now, or through any boundaries that could exist in the future, would be as false as an East or West Germany. I mean, can you imagine dividing up Northern Ireland after the troubles there between Catholics and Protestants, or indeed South Africa when it was still under apartheid? Any such solution wouldn't be one. It would constantly be open to further conflict and war, and really more of the same. I would like to advocate a one-state solution, something that people don't really talk about very much. Now, of course, this would be extremely difficult. Um, Israelis would be looking very much for uh, curbs on Arab power, as, of course, Palestinians outnumber them and therefore would outvote them uh, in any democracy that could exist in such an all-encompassing state. And, indeed, it would cost a lot of money. Germany spent billions of dollars uh, in their reunification efforts 20 years ago. But it would be worth it. I think this is the only possible way to get out of this current seemingly endless cycle of discrimination and death to achieve any kind of peaceful solution, because any talk of a two-state solution you know, really doesn't solve anything, and I think would, uh, well, if it was ever possible, uh, it has been made impossible by the continued building of Israeli settlements um, in occupied territory, and I think a one-state solution is the only possible way to go. So I'd, I'd like to hear what people have to say on that. Thank you very much. Hey, what's up, Jay? This is Professor Ramble from Georgia, man. Haven't heard from you. I hope, uh, hope all is well. Um, I just finished the show on Israel, man. I just had a few questions. Um, I guess, I mean, I took a lot of international relations courses and, you know, history courses in college, man, but I never really understood, you know, learning about Israel or learning about um, Arab-Palestine history. What actual right does Israel have to exist? Like, I don't want to sound like one of those, you know, nut jobs out there that hate Jewish people, but um, I guess when it says Israel has the right to exist in every place or every people, every country or every nation, it does have the right to exist, but... I guess what actually is the legitimacy in which Israel has the right to exist? I mean, is it because of investment says that's where, you know, the, the promised people will live? Or is it because of these religious nut jobs out here saying this is it, that Israel has the right to exist? But, well, I mean, what, but besides the UN English mandate of 1940, whatever, what right does Israel have to exist? And I guess another question would be, when did the sentiment in America turn from hating Jews to loving Jews? I mean, I remember 
you know, watching older movies, me, everybody hated Jews, you know, um, the Ku Klux Klan hates Catholic Jews and black people and foreigners, but when did, when did the sentiment turn in America from, you know, hate Jews to don't say anything bad about a Jew or, you know, we'll blow your country up, you know, um, I guess I'm going to continue to, you know, research when that shift in American thought changed, but, um, I just haven't had any luck, man, and maybe you can shed some light on it or any uh, other listeners. I appreciate it, man. You have a great day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And there are definitely some interesting messages coming in on the issue of Israel. I would love to hear more responses to the ideas and questions that we just heard posed, uh, especially from people with deep knowledge on the subject. I certainly could give my own thoughts, but you know, being asked to speak knowledgeably on the subject of either a one-state solution or to describe the nuanced details of the history of the creation of Israel really makes me think of my favorite saying of all time that I learned from my dad when I was a kid. You might know it. It's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. So if you care to speak up, we would love to hear from you. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained